All right, good morning and welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. Uh, we hope that you had a blessed time getting to greet your neighbor, and we'd encourage you um, after the service uh, to continue those conversations over uh, snacks, as well as uh, our equip hours that follow. Um, it's my pleasure to bring the Word of God to you guys today. Uh, Nam is speaking at a college retreat, um, and so uh, please be praying for him as he ministers and serves over there. Uh, for those who uh, uh, perhaps are newer to IBC, in the time that I've been able to be at the pulpit, uh, we've been here in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Um, and before we jump into the book of Nehemiah, uh, I wanted to begin by opening uh, uh, with a thought I had um, back when I was a little bit younger. Uh, back in the not-too-distant past, um, when I was in youth group, back when baggy jeans were in, and frosted tips, and uh, this thing called dial-up internet. You remember that when, if you were on the internet, you couldn't use the cell phone. Uh, back in those days, uh, when I was in youth group, I remember uh, getting a, after a youth group event, after a particular celebration, uh, one, of our youth group, or one of our youth group staffers handed us a CD. It was a present, and it was a CD with some of our favorite uh, worship music. And I think it had people like David Crowder and Jeremy Camp, if you know bands like that. Um, and it was a really cool gift. We took this CD and we put it in our Walkman, which, if you remember that, it's like an iPod, it's like an iPod right? But just one CD. And I remember putting it in, and it was so cool because it has a, a mixture of different songs. Well, it's not long after that, um, as I was listening to that CD, enjoying this Christian worship music, that my parents discovered this CD and they discovered that this CD had been burned. It had been burned. And what that meant is that these songs were illegally copied from original copies. Uh, we called it, or the government called it, pirating. The Bible called it stealing. Well, I fought a little bit with my parents. You know, I, I made excuses. Oh, it's cool. Uh, you know, I got it from youth group. I love it. But eventually I knew that I was wrong. I knew that what I had was illegally obtained. And this CD continued to be listened to by those in youth group. And uh, because of that, um, my generation of youth groupers uh, were, had one more reason to be encouraged to continue this practice of pirating. I knew it was wrong. I should have said something. But to my shame, I lacked the moral courage to do anything about it. Have you guys ever had a time in your life where you knew the right thing to do, but you were unsure if you had the strength to do something about it? Have you ever found yourself perhaps at a crossroads between what is right and what is popular? Between what is right and what is easy? Between what is right and what is convenient? Have you ever found yourself uh, between what we might say a rock and a holy place? Have you ever found yourself in a position where you knew what must be done, where sin was clear, and yet you lacked moral courage? Well, if any of you have found yourself in that position, then you can relate to Nehemiah, Nehemiah in chapter 5. If you're not familiar with Nehemiah, Nehemiah was not among the patriarchs. He was not a prophet. He was not a preacher, nor a priest, or a mighty warrior. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was eventually the governor of Jerusalem. He was a civil servant. He was a politician. But most of all, Nehemiah was a man who loved and feared God and had a passion for his purposes. And so in Nehemiah chapter 5, what we're going to do is we're going to open up at a time in Nehemiah's life in which he is going to be faced with a problem in which moral courage will be required. By way of review, Nehemiah, as I, was, as I said earlier, he was cupbearer to the king of Artaxerxes, king of the Persian Empire. He was a close confidant of the most powerful man in the world. The Jewish exiles who had returned with Ezra and Zerubbabel earlier, with great effort, had rebuilt the temple. Uh, but Nehemiah eventually hears that the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed and the people of God are defenseless and in need of help. And as we understand from Deuteronomy, the walls around Jerusalem were more than just a pragmatic means of protecting God's people, but really they were a symbol 
of the spiritual condition of Israel. And so Nehemiah prays to the Lord. He prays to God and he asks God for favor as he goes to ask the king, the most powerful man in the world, if he can go and build these walls. Well, God in his mercy answers that prayer and he allows him to go back, uh, to go and rebuild these walls. And he says, you know what? Do it on the king's dime. He gives them the funds they need. So Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem. He rallies the people to build the wall. But then... Sanballat and his allies and the enemies of God, they come and they mock his efforts. Nehemiah is met with opposition after opposition. But he bands the people together and they build the wall, but the mockery continues. People get discouraged and weary. People are physically exhausted and they begin to poison the morale of the people of God. But eventually, Nehemiah rallies the people as rumors of external threats of being ambushed, continue to seep in day after day, Nehemiah rallies the people of God together, saying, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your home. The people, they steal themselves for battle, they steal themselves to build, and no attack comes. The wall is eventually halfway built, and it's at that precise moment that we come to our passage. That even though trouble had been brewing outside and no attack comes in, what we realize is that there are walls being built outside, there are walls inside that are being built between the builders. And so it's to that point that we come to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let me read it for you. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it's a good one. This is what it reads. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were... For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. For there were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought back, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, Let us abandon the exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to their governor to the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 
Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten, ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. In our passage today, we're going to, our structure is simple. There are three parts. We're going to begin by seeing the outcry of the people in verses 1 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 13, we'll move on to the charge against the nobles. And then in our last part, we will see the generosity of Governor Nehemiah. So let's begin with the outcry of the people. Outcry of the people. So this passage begins with, um, they've been building the wall. We read earlier that some of the wall had been uh, the, the, it, the wall was mid-construction. Uh, we learn later that the wall would take 52 days to build, and so these plaints, complaints come somewhere in the middle, so most likely what happened here was somewhere beha- between perhaps days 30 to 40. Uh, but what's clear is that in the middle of building, Nehemiah will stop the building to address a very real problem among the people of God. So the first thing we're going to see is the widespread problem. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. This word for outcry um, was a word used to mean uh, to, make, uh, to declare distress, a loud cry to express the extreme difficulty that someone was going through. Uh, this is the same word in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, uh, where it says, The people of God had seen the oppression and they made an outcry uh, to the Lord himself. And so what they're about to say and what they're about to express is not the loud outcry of a minority. Uh, these are not a few words um, to uh, a loud, small group, but rather these are really the words that come from the entirety of the people of God. And then you'll notice it says, and of the wives. And uh, the outcry is not simply made by the men, as would have been in typical Jewish uh, custom. It was, more, it was most common for when there was a need for the men to speak up in the assembly. But the problem is so rampant and so widespread that the women feel the need to join in. Um, and as we're going to see, probably most likely, uh, that's motivated by how, um, how the issue of not having enough food, it's likely that with all the men having to work extra duty on the wall, defending and building the woman had to pull double duty uh, to work the farms and to feed their families. And then it says who this outcry was against. It was against their Jewish brothers. It was against their Jewish brothers. What we're going to see here is that the problem that Nehemiah is facing is no longer a force from outside, but a force from within. Um, it, it was said when Rome fell... Uh, to foreign powers. Rome fell internally long before it fell externally. And what we will see here is that even in the people of God, there's going to be a very serious, serious problem. Let's look at the problem itself. What is the problem itself? Well, in their outcry, they, they, they have about four complaints, four complaints. Outcry number one is what they're saying is, there are a lot of us and we're hungry. Look at that. It says, uh, we have sons and daughters. We are many. We need to get grain. I think we can all relate to that. Um, many of us can't go uh, many uh, just a few hours without having to eat, right? And they're saying we have a lot of children. We have families, and we need to feed them. Well, then outcry number two then is that there is unfortunately at this time a famine in the land. And so the second outcry is that there's famine and food is expensive. And so to buy food, in order to put food on the table, it says they had to mortgage their fields, their vineyards, their houses, their property. Just to take care of groceries, they had to give all that they had just to make ends meet. Now, we don't really know exactly why there was a famine. It could have been a a poor harvest uh, that year. Uh, It could have been a particular blight that affected the crops. Uh, But probably more than likely, a big part of it would have been with Sanballat and the surrounding armies nearby. A common war tactic was when you were trying to uh, siege or take over a city, rather than to outright attack the army, attack the city, they would just encamp around. 
And they would make it very difficult for supplies and goods and services and workers to get in. Uh, And you would attempt to starve those inside the walls. Well, for whatever reason, food is scarce. And the price of food, for whatever there is, has gone through the roof. Well, outcry number three, then, as we see, is that if that wasn't enough, what we see is that the king of Persia is taxing their land. Persia was the uh, power uh, at the time, and so they're taxing their land. And the problem is, as we see here, is that in order to pay these taxes, uh, what they have to do is they have to enslave their children. They needed groceries for their kids. Their kids were hungry, so they sold their land when they had to pay taxes on the land that they didn't even really own anymore. The only thing they have left to do is to enslave their children, creating a problem for the very thing which they were trying to solve. Now, we know from historical records um, that at this time, uh, that though Persia was very tolerant and lenient uh, religiously uh, towards the people that they ruled Uh, They were very, very harsh at times when it came to taxes. We know from archaeological records that taxes could be as high as 20% uh, sometimes on the land you owned. And toward the end of Nehemiah's life, uh, we find that it could be as high as 40 or 50% on your property. I mean, just imagine paying taxes like that on your home. It's absolutely crazy. Earlier on, when Darius had become king of Persia, Not only did he tax the people, but he instated a tax that was not only on the land you own, but the the harvest of your crops. And you not only got taxed on the harvest of your crops this year, but you got taxed on the harvest from last year. So you would actually get double taxed. It was a really, really tough time. So let me me perhaps try to explain that to you. If if you kind of read that, and if you're like me, you kind of read that and you're like, okay, it sounds like like a tough time. And let me perhaps contextualize a little bit. Imagine this. Imagine the roads in and out of the valley, the 5, the 405, and the 118, have been completely shut down uh, because of outside military forces. Resources, aid, and supplies are scarce. Uh, your paychecks that you take from home are thinner and thinner because you find yourself busy with other things, and your fridge is getting thinner and thinner. Your fridge becomes bare. Uh, your pantry is empty. Food is scarce, and the price of chicken skyrockets to $20 a pound. You lose your job, and your children are crying because their bellies are empty. So unsure what to do, you take out a second mortgage on your home, and you use that that money to pay grocery bills. But the bills keep on piling and piling, and you get letters in the mail that say eviction. And so your creditors, they're they're here, they're going to take away your home, they're going to take away your car, They're coming for everything that you own. And your only hope, your only rescue are wealthy Christians who go to the same church as you. People you've loved, people you've served with and done ministry with. And you come to them asking for help and they say, hey, we'll lend you the money. But we need 35% interest plus fees. Imagine you served together in children's ministries. You've sang together on the worship team. You've served in the parking lot. You've built the kingdom of God together only for them to exploit you in your time of need. These are hard times, and that's exactly what is happening to the people of Nehemiah. These are the people who have worked together. They came with gusto and with strength. They stood against opposition after opposition. And yet what we find is that the people who had claimed to be among the people of God were using their opportunity to exploit one another. And look at verse 5. Verse 5 says it all. It says, But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and vineyards. This is an absolutely tragic passage. To hear that people who have been working so hard together only to find that they are using the very same thing that they were attempting to fight, that they were trying to care for one another and rebuild the people of God, is crumbling from the inside because of the actions of a few people. It's a difficult passage, and it's, it's uncomfortable. Right? As we look at it, we think to ourselves, wait, aren't these the same people who are building the wall together? If you look in chapter 4, what we realize is that 
or chapter 3, what we realize is they had been working together. These weren't strangers to one another. They weren't at all. And yet what we see is they were powerless to stop it. They were powerless. They felt as if they had no strength. They come to Nehemiah saying, Nehemiah, we can't do anything. We're trying to rebuild this wall, but this is our problem. It was a difficult time. It was a difficult time. You know, as I look at the minds of the nobles and the officials, I ask myself, you know, what were they, why would they do that? And though it's hard to know, you know, perhaps they thought to themselves, well, you know, I need to protect my financial holdings. You know, these people, they really should have planned ahead to take care of uh, their, their, their future needs. They could have said, hey, it's rough, but, you know, if I don't give them, if I don't, take, if, if I don't profit off them, someone else will, it might as well be me. And they probably justified their own actions as they went to bed each night. It was a horrible and painful situation. And it was a situation in which the affliction to the people of God was done by the people of God. And so as we look to this, if we look to this part of Scripture, what we're reminded of is that there is no God-centered effort that is immune to internal conflict, that is immune to the sin that can happen even within people who are doing something for Jesus Christ. It's a painful reminder that even in good churches, with good leaders, that teach good doctrine, internal conflict amongst the people of God can happen because of sin. And yet what we're talking about right in this passage reminds us that even as they look at it, as they attempt to do something for God, no one, no people is immune to this. You see, during this time, there was a spirit of cooperation, camaraderie. They worked together to build the wall. But not everyone who was present there was really there for God. It's interesting that as you look at the nobles, though they are surely pro-God, though they are surely supportive of the idea of the work, uh, what's interesting is in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. We are now seeing the, the extension of what has already kind of been hinted at earlier in Nehemiah. The nobles who would not do the work of God, who were probably there supporting it in theory, but they would not put their hand to do what God had called them to do. And now they show their true colors. They reveal that it had always been about them, that though they were maybe pro-God, they were chiefly pro-self. And they were out there for themselves. And so it reminds us, as we look at our church, uh, that we have to be reminded that even as we serve together, as we evangelize the lost together, as we do missions together, as we do children's ministry, as we care and sing and love together, we need to be reminded that we need to look out for one another so that we don't allow internal conflict to fall into our churches, into our ministries We have to be careful to not allow seeds of bitterness to grow, for walls to be built up. We have to be careful of not tolerating unforgiveness amongst one another. We have to be careful to not, for there not to be divisions between how much you make, or what country your family came from, what car you drive, or who your favorite sports team is. We have to be careful to be reminded that we need to protect the purity of the community of faith. And that's exactly what we're going to see Nehemiah do. And in addition, as we think about this, it's important that as we endeavor to protect uh, the testimony of the church, it's important to, as we look and try to protect those around us, we have to also be reminded that it starts with us. It's easy to look around and and, and to look and see the needs, the, the faults of others, but it really begins with our heart because it's only our heart that we can truly work on. Well, how does Nehemiah address this issue? How does he address this internal conflict? What does he do? In our next passage, we're in the next part, we're going to look at the charge against the nobles in verses 6 through 13. The charge against the nobles. And in this part, what Nehemiah does is he goes to the, uh, he goes to the nobles and he addresses them publicly. He addresses them publicly. Let's look at this. The first thing he does, as we're going to see, is he goes up to them and it says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry with these and these words, and I took counsel with myself. It's amazing that 
In this situation, Nehemiah could have heard that and he could have said, wow, that's a lot. And that's not my problem. It would have been easier for Nehemiah to just ignore, to do nothing. But Nehemiah cares. And so he decides uh, to do something. But the very first thing he does is he gets angry. And in fact, the text says he was very, very angry. Now, I know many of us understand anger to be a wrong emotion. And much of that is because when we are angry, um, we are tainted by our sin. That our anger causes us to be ungodly and to act in a way that does not honor God. But if you know the Bible, then you know that the Bible teaches that God is a God of anger and a God of wrath towards the things that displease him. Frankie Schaefer, the grandson of the late apologist Francis Schaefer, uh, said there are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. David Pallison, in his book that I know many of you guys have read, Good and Angry, uh, makes some very helpful insights about godly anger. Let me review a few for you. He points out that every time you get angry, you make your values and your point of view explicit. Nehemiah is making it very clear uh, what he values. And then, um, Pallison goes on to talk about how when God is angry at our sin, he's making his values known. He's not ambivalent to the existence of sin. He hates sin. He values holiness and righteousness and goodness. And so his anger is an expression towards what he values. To sum it all up, anger says, I'm against that. I'm against that. Anger expresses our reaction to something we find offensive and something we wish to eliminate. Anger is about displeasure. Anger is about the way you react to something when we think something important is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're going to find that Nehemiah is an angry person. And Jesus was an angry person. And God was an angry person, but always perfect in that anger Ephesians 4.26 tells us how to be angry. It says, be angry and do not sin. One way you could translate that is let yourself be angry and do not sin. Even in honoring God, our anger is is a tool in which we need to channel towards constructive God-honoring purposes. Nehemiah sees this Uh, the oppression that's happening in the camp. He sees that the people of God who are called to love one another are enslaving one another, oppressing and exploiting one another, and that makes his blood boil. It makes him angry, and rightly so. But how does he handle that anger? It says, when he heard that anger, he took counsel with himself. He took counsel with himself. They're interesting words because the idea of taking counsel with yourself, the idea is he pondered it to himself, he thought carefully about it, um, he, uh, as one translation says in the NEB, it says, I mastered my feelings. And I think the idea is this. Nehemiah is not saying he was waiting for himself, for his anger to disappear, but he was, he was taking the time to think and ponder carefully so that the anger he felt could be channeled in a way that could be constructive and helpful to the people of God. And so what does Nehemiah actually do? Well, Nehemiah's approach, as we're going to see to this issue, to this sin, to the exploitation among the people of God, is that he's going to be careful and he's going to be corrective. Careful and corrective. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to blast in there with all his fury, all the unrelenting rage he had at them, some of which might have been deserved. It would have been easy for him to sling mud. It would have been easy for him to take a fire and throw gasoline on it. Let's look at what he does. I'm going to go through it briefly. And as we do, um, we're going to, there's about seven different uh, parts to what Nehemiah does here. And I think as we look at it, it's extremely helpful as we think about how we can confront those in sin, how we can talk to um, people for anything for which there are spiritually sensitive matters. It's helpful for when we talk to a roommate that we have issues with or, or, or a child, um, a loved one. What does Nehemiah do? Well, the first thing we see... And the first thing we're going to get is a statement of facts. Statement of facts. He begins by saying, We, as far as we're able, have brought back our Jewish brothers that have been sold to the nations. He begins by saying, Look, guys, let me explain to you what has happened. He states what factually has occurred. He recounts how the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, they pulled their money together to buy back as many of their Jewish brothers who were enslaved. Uh, that slavery might have been the result of 
the Babylonian captivity. It might have been debt slavery. Um, it was probably a combination of both. Uh, but through that, they, as far as they were able to, they were able to track and trace down and find out where their loved ones had been sold. You can imagine that being a very difficult process, going to one slave master, to hearing they were sold to another family, to another family, to another family. As far as they were able to, they tracked them down. And then the Jews, they pooled their money together. The people of God came together and they put their monies in pots to buy back as many of their friends, their loved ones. It was a difficult time. And that was to say nothing of those they couldn't get to. It says as far as they were able to. And he says, in the midst of that, even as we bought them back from the pagan nations, what have you done? You have sold your brothers, and who are you selling them to? Back to us. Nehemiah concisely and simply points out what has happened. He says, this this is what it is. And what is the nobles' response? It says that they were silent. They were silent, and they could not find a word to say. Why? Because they knew they were guilty. Because there was nothing they could say. And they knew it was true. Well, Nehemiah doesn't just state the facts. On this next part, in verse 9, it says, uh, he gives an evaluation, and he says, the thing you're doing is not good. Uh, Nehemiah is simple, he's concise. He points out that not only did this happen, but let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you what the Word of God would say. He says this is wrong. Um, He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't put qualifiers to lessen the blow. He says what is true because that's exactly what it is. He eliminates all doubt as to what the moral evaluation of the matter is. He doesn't just say, well, here's what it is. Um, Think what you want. He points out what God would have him say. Then what happens next is he gives an appeal to common faith. He doesn't just simply point out this is bad, but he attempts to encourage them uh, to call them uh, to think better. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of God, the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? You see, Nehemiah is appealing to their common faith that they're claiming to have, that they should have. Nehemiah is saying, your actions What they're doing is they're providing fuel for the surrounding nations to taunt and mock our people so that the surrounding nations can say things like, what hypocrites those people are. Don't those people, don't they claim that their God is a God of love and kindness and they're enslaving their own people? What a joke. And those would have been the kind of taunts that they hear that that, that could be said. And Nehemiah is saying, isn't what we're supposed to do to fear our God? To put it in New Testament terms, what he's saying is, isn't Jesus Christ your Lord? Isn't that what you claim? Well, then the next part, what Nehemiah next does, he claims personal responsibility. And this part's interesting. In verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. See, Nehemiah, what he does is he's claiming some personal responsibility. He's saying, you know what? I and my brothers... And my servants, meaning the lesser officials under him, we could say his employees, you know, we're lending them money and grain. And we don't know the extent to which Nehemiah is doing this. There's no notion that he engaged in uh, uh, slavery. There's nothing to suggest that whatever interest he was charging, that it was oppressive. We don't know that. But what is clear is that he does, uh, is that he is lending money. And so in as much as he can, he is claiming any type of personal responsibility in a humble way. He's acknowledging that at least to some extent, he has been some of the creditors that have made this difficult. And it's unlikely that Nehemiah did this at a personal level. He might have, but more than likely, as a powerful man, he probably had um, his assistants handle his accounts and things like that. But either way, Nehemiah is assuming any personal responsibility that he can to show that I'm not above you. If there's things that I can do, I want to be part of that. I want to admit to that. Well, next then, Nehemiah um, calls everyone to abandon the exacting of interest together. He calls for restoration together. Nehemiah says, let's abandon the exacting of interest. Nehemiah is compelling the nobles to join hands to him so they can make things right. It's not enough to feel bad. We need to do something. We need to fix this. Now, it wasn't sinful to grant loans. But the Bible did talk about charging interest. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-five, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Pretty straightforward. 
But in Leviticus 25, 35, it says even more. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, this is exactly what's happening. It says, in that situation, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. The passage is really clear. The nobles have charged interest. They've profited from it. Nehemiah, in some degree, um, at least has, uh, has lent out money. And what he's saying is that the heart of this passage is that we're actually supposed to be supporting our brothers. And his appeal, if you saw earlier, was, ought you not to live in the fear of God? I think this verse right here, Leviticus 25, is the very verse that is driving what he's doing right now. His time and t- his here, and then at the later of the passage, he talks about the fear of God. He's saying, we need to fix this, guys. And notice he says, let us. Let us. Um, again, it's, it's not clear whether Nehemiah was as guilty as the nobles. It seems unlikely. But what he says is, he, rather than saying, pointing the finger at them, Nehemiah says, let us do this together. He's saying, let's fix this problem. Let's be restored to one another. Let's abandon the charging of interest. Then in verses 11 to 12, we see a call to immediate action. It's not enough to just say, hey, in theory, we should fix this. He tells them what to do. And so in verses 11 to 12, he calls them to this day, this very day, return their fields, their vineyards. Return all the things you took as collateral. Give it back to them. And all the interest, that was the money, the grain, the wine, the oil. Give it back to them. Undo the wrong you have done. Notice he calls them to do it immediately. Uh, Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, go home and think about it. He doesn't say, go home um, and pray about it. He doesn't say, um, if you get a chance. When sin is so clear and the right thing is so clear, he just says today. Right now, today, he calls us, he calls them to immediate action, to make things right, to reconcile and make reparations. And amazingly, what they say is they say, we will restore them and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's the exact response Nehemiah was hoping for. It's amazing. But then Nehemiah, being a wise leader, does one more thing. And he calls for accountability. He calls for accountability. He calls the priests and he makes them uh, conduct a formal oath, which is something which was part of the offices of what a priest would do. And what he does is he holds them accountable before the entire assembly uh, that they're in front of. And what he says um, is a warning. And he says, So may God make out of every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. And what he does, he shakes his garment. And I'm not exactly sure what that is, but probably like one of these. Um, He's probably shaking himself. There may have been dust or whatever on him. And the idea here is he shakes his garment to say, So may the person who breaks their promise to give back, may they be shaken out and emptied. In other words, may they lose all that they have. Nehemiah is asking and reminding the people that his, uh, he's calling upon the people of God to remember that God should be to you, as a form of justice, your creditor. And if you are not willing to give back to these people, as you said, God should judge you, and God should remove from you the things that you have. See, Nehemiah knows that it's one thing to, to say something, uh, but to not really mean it. Nehemiah knows that it's easy for the heart to be convicted in one moment, but if that sin has been deep-rooted, if it's been going on for a long time, it's easy to feel conviction now and to do nothing. And so to shepherd the people, to care for the nobles, to care for the people, he puts something in place as a formal reminder of the promise they had just made. And so what is, what is our takeaway from all this? Our takeaway from this is very straightforward. It's that when confronting sin, we also must be careful and corrective. In Nehemiah's time here, it would have been easy for him, as we said, to just fire from the hip. He could have entered that situation and just said, you know what, that noble, let me talk about this, this sin I have with you. Let me talk about this problem I have with you. He could have slung all kinds of mud, even things that were real, but Nehemiah is careful, and he's collected and corrective. Nehemiah would have uh, kept in mind verses like Proverbs twelve eighteen that there is one who has rash words like sword thrusts, but the tongues of the wise bring healing. 
Nehemiah would have been reminded in Proverbs 25, 15, that with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Though Nehemiah's words are strong, in many, in many ways they are very gracious. And as we see, it breaks, uh, it, it convicts the people who are listening. He would have been reminded of words like Proverbs 25.11, which says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover or a listening ear. He would have been reminded, as that proverb teaches, that a word that is well said and well timed is like a work of art. And he does so effectively. Nehemiah shows us that when we come into situations requiring moral courage, when it comes to situations having to deal with the sin of others, the sin of our own life, that our goal is to fight problems and not people. He reminds us that the true goal is not a cessation just of friction, but a creation of fellowship. He reminds us that when there is an outcry from within the people of God, that the goal is to bring people into right relationship with one another and with our Lord. Well, then in our final passage, our final bit of the passage, we get to Nehemiah's generosity, the generosity of the governor. Uh, in this passage, we kind of almost take like a, a brief step back from that assembly and that issue. And, we, and what we learn and what we realize is that Nehemiah went above and beyond the call of duty. What did he do? In our passage, we realize that Nehemiah was made governor of Jerusalem. He was a politician. He was powerful. And he did so for 12 years. Now, as the politician of the time, as the governor, he had an absolutely legitimate right to charge the people uh, uh, a food allowance. We could say a tax was a benefit of his office. Um, It would have been uh, a cost of about 40 shekels of silver a day, it says. And every governor before him took it. He had a legitimate right and legal claim to what was placed before him. And yet what we see is that Nehemiah, throughout his entire reign, chooses not to take this benefit, chooses not to take a part of his salary. And why does he do this? This may just seem like something, some, just something that Nehemiah historically did, uh, but what ne- the reason Nehemiah does this is because he is considering these very people who have been going through this oppression. And so what compels Nehemiah to not take what is rightfully his? Well, let's look at it. And the first is he is compelled by compassion. Nehemiah is compelled by compassion. Look at this. It says that in the former governors who came before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people. He looks to the people, and he, he can imagine their eyes, their faces, their jobs, their families, and he remembers that heavy burdens were placed on the people. So compelled by passion, he places a heavy burden on himself. He knows that from the past that even their servants, so the past governor's employees, their minor officials, they lorded it over the people. Not only did they charge, but they did it as they used their power to exploit the people before them. He has compassion. And every day what we realize in verse 17 is that there were a table of 150 men, Jews, officials, and people that he would feed. Um, You could say uh, people that he employed, um, you could say people that in his generosity he took care of, but at his expense, he paid for 150 people. It's a lot of food. To the extent that they used an ox, six sheep, birds, all kinds of food and wine. Nehemiah did this. He didn't use his professional expense, as you might say. Why? Because the service was too heavy on these people. Nehemiah looked into the people he was serving, and he knew that it was too much. And compelled by compassion for his fellow man, his fellow people, he did not take what he could. Though every other governor might have advised you, hey, you know, it's part of the perks. It's something you have to do. It's completely legitimate. You know, you could have said that with all that, it's not that he's just building up his own, uh, uh, it's not he's just building up his own wealth. Um, you, you know, he could argue, well, this is you know, what I need to do to be a good governor. This is what I need to do to be faithful to the job. I need to host all these people. And yet Nehemiah doesn't take that benefit, nor does he take land. Why? Because Nehemiah, and his main objective, is not to build up himself, but his main objective is to serve God and to serve these people. 
Well, Nehemiah isn't only compelled by a compassion for those around him, but he's also compelled by a fear of God. He's compelled by a fear of God. Look at this passage. It says, But I did not do this. I did not lord over the people because of the fear of God. What compelled him, what motivated him, was the opposite of what motivated the nobles. The nobles did not fear God, and so they enslaved one another. But Nehemiah loved them, and so he served one another. See, Nehemiah, it says, not only did he do what he did, it says he continued, he persevered the work on the wall. He stayed on the tasks that had been given to him. He didn't just address this issue. He did this issue while also still building the wall and still being a governor. Let's be reminded that his main job was not only to build a wall, he still had to run um, a, a largely defeated country. And it says not only did he do that, but he rallied the officials to the work. He didn't allow his officials to just lord it over them. It says that he put them to the work. It suggests that he put them, his servants to the work as well. See, Nehemiah understood that in order to do this right, he still also had to, as he was balancing this real issue, he still managed to do his main job. He was a servant leader. And as a servant leader, he was a lead servant compelled by who God was. As A.W. Tozer reminds us, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Nehemiah's actions are motivated by his fear of God. Because he respects and reveres and loves God, that is everything that drives his motivations here. Nehemiah, as we see, goes above and beyond the call of duty to set an example for those around him, the nobles who have been the chief offenders and the people who have been consistently oppressed. Nehemiah shows us the kind of influence we're called to have in the lives of those around us. Not what is easy, not what is convenient, but rather to love and to serve and to sacrifice and to give. He reminds, us, he reminds me of our Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Well, what then does that perhaps present for us today? In Nehemiah's final example, it is the reminder that when we consider others, that when we look at others, we must focus on who God is. When we come to positions in our life when there are needs in peop- inside the people of God, in the workplace, in the home, needs will come where we have to consider others. We have to be thoughtful and mindful. And if all we do is just have compassion on fellow man, if, if, that's the highest, if that's where it stops, it's easy to get burnt out. It's easy to complain. It's easy to uh, feel as if this is not what you deserve, feeling this is unfair. But Nehemiah is compelled, not primarily by compassion for one another, though it's included, but he's focusing on who God is. So when we consider others, like Nehemiah, who is motivated by a fear of God, it's important to be reminded that God is the main person we are thinking about when we think about other people. That you're right, maybe to love that difficult coworker, that difficult person in your family, uh, to handle that uh, that problem, that issue in your workplace, that when we have difficult things, you're right, maybe they don't, they, maybe they don't deserve it at a human level. Maybe, they, you, maybe you should feel like you don't have to do anything for them. And yet the motivating factor when we consider one another should not be who they are, but who God is. Because praise God that when he thinks about us, when he sent his son to die on the cross, he didn't look at our quality or worth or ability and say, I'm going to consider them, I'm going to save them, I'm going to care for them based on who they are and what they deserve. Rather, he focuses, Jesus focuses on God's glory and God's objective. And so as generous as Nehemiah was, the primary focus of how he thought about people was focused chiefly on God. And it is when we consider others with God as the person we're trying to consider that gives us strength because we could never do so much for people that it outdoes what God has done for us. And so it is to that point that Nehemiah comes to his final words and he reveals his heart here and he says this, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah's words are not the words of bragging or um, uh, calling to attention what he has done, but it is a humble prayer in which he 
humbly comes before God, fearing him with all that he has, and saying, Lord, all that, all that he's done, I pray that you would look upon me as you look upon your people. That you would give me the justice um, that uh, you rightly de- determined to be worthy for all that I have done. This is almost the opposite of the imprecatory prayer he makes earlier um, in chapter 4, where he's telling God, be just as you are just towards sin. He's saying, God, you are good. Be good as you are towards goodness. And so when we do good and sacrifice, when you feel like no one sees the good you do, no one appreciates the good you do, uh, when you do good in secret and there's no one to encourage, no one to notice, no one to acknowledge, I think we can borrow something here from Nehemiah. When only God sees to say, oh God, remember all that I have done for this people. And so when we come to times in our life when there is an outcry from within the church, when we come to a place in our life where we need moral courage to stand up for what's right, when we come to a place in our life when we have to consider those and those around us, we can look to the example of Nehemiah. But even greater so, we can look to the example of Jesus, who came to serve who came to love us, who gave us the strength that we don't have, but by dying on the cross for our sins, he allows us to do what we never could. As the song that we often sing here at church goes, the song we, we know well, Christ is mine forevermore, it says this, Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work on me. And so as we go on to live our lives, as we encounter situations similar to this, let's remember that Christ completes his work in us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for real, historical, inspired stories such as that of Nehemiah. We thank you of the courage it took to go into situations like this. And Lord, we know that for many of us that we will encounter situations that are similar yet different. And we pray, Lord, that we would, like Nehemiah, be compelled by the fear of God to have the moral courage to do what is right and and not just what is easy or popular. Lord, help us to serve the people you have placed in our sphere of influence. Help us to love all those within our church and within our families. Help us to honor you with all that we have. Amen.